This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you are listening to The Faith Experiment. This is episode five of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Terror and Faith. This is the show about exploring faith. It's about breaking down themes that are often seen as very complicated. We want to make faith practical so that you can experiment with it in your own life. Well, as I've mentioned in the last few episodes, I'm starting this show by first taking you through how I started my own personal experiment with faith. This is not just a theory. It's not just a nice feel-good story. I'm sharing with you how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. Well, where are you listening to The Faith Experiment from today? I'd love to hear from you. Text me on 0488-45311 or email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au or you can message me on the Faith FM Facebook page. Where are you listening to The Faith Experiment from today? Well, now it's time to draw the winner of the first ever quiz on The Faith Experiment. On last week's show, you were given the opportunity to enter the quiz by answering the question, What happened to me in a field? For those of you who have been following my story so far, you'll remember that it was in a field that I saw the electrical storm and that movie play back in my mind of my life, showing me all the things I'd done wrong. So we've had a number of entries over the last week, and now it's time for the computer to randomly select a winner. So we'll let the computer do its thing. Okay, we have a winner. Drum roll, please. Okay, the winner of the first faith experiment quiz is Jim Bukers from Mittagong in New South Wales. Congratulations, Jim. You're the winner of the first ever faith experiment quiz. Now, what do you get for winning the quiz? I'm going to be sending you a DVD entitled The Case for a Creator. It's by award-winning journalist Lee Strobel, who interviews scientists and Christian scholars about the existence of God. And I'll be getting that out to you very, very soon. So stay tuned for that. Now, on this show, I have a great little ebook I want to give away, which is actually based on today's topic. So stick around and get the code word during the show. You'll need to text the code word to 0488-45311. So save the number in your phone, 0488-45311, and wait for the code word. Well, as I've said, this is episode number five, Terror and Faith. The terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 are without question the defining moment of the 21st century to date. In the wake of that national tragedy for the Americans, many people exhibited renewed religious commitment. According to Gallup polls, religious attendance that first weekend after the attacks skyrocketed. Continuing our special series of reports this week on 9-11, and after the September 11th attacks in 2001, many people turned or returned to their faith. 9-11 was a day that tested and in many ways renewed people's faith. I've shared on the past few episodes that my story started when I was working as a software engineer in Brisbane in the late 1990s. And even though everything in my life was going very well, I had brand new cars, a brand new house, and I traveled the world. And even though I had everything going for me and my future was looking very bright, even though that was my reality, there was this splinter in my mind that was disturbing my peace. It gave me a continual feeling that something was missing in my life or something just wasn't quite right. 
Now, if you missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up on some of the details, go ahead and grab the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcast section for The Faith Experiment. Now, in the last episode, I shared with you how, as the war on terror started in the wake of 911, this new war, which we were told would be like no other, had all the hallmarks of a religious war. And it was seen by many as a war between the God and religion of Islam and the God of American Christianity. I also shared how, up until this point, I'd been somewhat led by clues that had been leading me to explore the Hebrew book of Daniel and the Greek book of Revelation, which, as many of you would know, are both held as holy books in the Christian tradition. Now, as Islam started to gain more and more publicity in Western media, the contrast between this God, Allah, and the American God was becoming more and more apparent. And I was confronted with this thought that, isn't it somewhat convenient that I'm born here in Australia where traditionally we see ourselves as Christian who descend from the same tradition which we got from England? I mean, if I was born in Afghanistan, surely I would believe in a Islamic God and an Islamic religion. If I was born in India, wouldn't I be a Hindu or Thailand? I'd be a Buddhist. And so I began my quest to compare and contrast these other worldviews to ensure that I was being true to the data and not just being blindly led to a default Western concept of God and religion. I explored the Hindu faith and the Buddhist faith and Islam and Judaism and the ancient Chinese, Christianity and secular and atheistic worldviews. And I found that despite their differences, they shared a number of similarities, which I summarized as, one, they all see that there is a fundamental concept of morality, or that there is a difference between right and wrong actions. And second, they all see that today humanity lives in a morally imperfect world. And three, all these worldviews agree that today humans have many behavioral imperfections. And four, they see that humans must have these imperfections changed or removed if there is to be any hope for our species. And fifth, they all see that the only way for human beings to remove or to improve these imperfections is through a change of character. And six, all of these worldviews see that human character, which drives action, is the central issue in a judgment, whether it's before a judge or a deity. And lastly, all of these worldviews see that human beings need to be transformed into better people if there is to be any hope for the world. By the end of 2001, my life was almost unrecognizable compared to what it was at the start of the year. I mean, I now owned a Bible. I owned a Strong's Bible Concordance. My engagement to my fiancé was off. My social circle had completely disappeared. My financial plans were in shambles. My parents had turned their lives around, and they were now following God. And the world had been thrust into what many were calling a new post-9-11 world. There isn't a dimension of our lives, of our government, of our country, of our foreign policy that has not been impacted by 9-11. It was more an attack on American capitalism. 
know, we knew that this, this was one of those fulcrum moments, economically, politically, psychologically. She said, Mother, I feel like uh, Alice in Wonderland. I've gone through the looking glass and nothing will be the same again. 9-11 shook us to our core. Anybody that was of age during that time, it's like the Kennedy assassination. Where were you on 9-11? And everybody has their story. It, it, it has marked our generation. It was a win for the bad guys. We can't let that happen again. At work, there began to be rumors spreading around that our company was in financial trouble. You see, I worked in a team of about 40 programmers for a multinational with more than 10,000 employees. But the company had staggering losses in the wake of 911. And there had been some redundancies in some of the peripheral business service departments of the company I worked for. But we were all assured that our ITC services, or the programming department, were essential to the company and there was nothing to worry about for us. Now, every spare moment, I was on a quest to find meaning and to gain understanding of what was happening in the world. And as I've already shared, I, I found that statement connecting the events of New York City to the prophecies of Daniel chapter 11, which of course led me on that quest where I ended up with a Bible and an audio Bible, and then ultimately flow charting out the book of Revelation scene by scene as each of those prophecies describe those remarkable images and symbols and beasts. But now, as I turned my attention to other world views, I started discovering other patterns within the teachings and philosophy of these worldviews, which began to lead me down a path that would eventually completely transform my life. Every worldview fundamentally holds the notion that humanity today, at its core, is somehow deficient. Now, whether that is due to sinfulness or selfishness or some form of lack of reason or education, each worldview desires to transform humanity by elevating it in some shape or form. Now, I share with you already how that the major worldviews see that humanity is naturally selfish and destructive, hence the reason for poverty and greed and theft and murder in the world today. And it appears that for all these worldviews, if there is to be any real chance for peace and harmony on earth, a change must first be made in the heart and mind of its people. And so this got me thinking, where does this concept of morality the idea of right and wrong, where does that come from? After all, most worldviews connect the right to some kind of godlike being while they connect wrong to some sort of anti-god figure. While in the scientific world, there are attempts to explain these two opposing opposites using evolution and sociology and psychology. But as I pondered this question, it triggered another series of questions for me. Questions like... How did all these world views, which at some point in Earth's history were generally tied to culture, how did they end up with similar, if not the same, view of what it was right and what was wrong? Which leads to another question. What is the origin of culture? Where did humanity come from? And is there some connection to human nature 
Is there an innate sense of right and wrong? And what about right and wrong? What is the difference between the two of them? Who defined right and wrong? Who, who says that something is right and something is wrong? Well, we have to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll continue with this next stage of my post-9-11 faith experiment. And make sure you stick around to get today's code word to get the link to my free ebook. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Power of Christ, I'll stand. 
This is The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and this is Episode 5 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Terror and Faith. Now, remember, I have a great little free ebook I want to give away today based on today's topic. So stick around to get the code word at the end of the show, and you will need to text that code word to 0488845311. So save the number on your phone now, 0488845311, and wait for the code word. Now, I've been sharing with you how my personal experiment with faith began in the wake of the terrorist attacks of 911. And everything so far in my journey had brought me to those questions, which I share with you just before the break. Questions like, how did all of these various cultures and worldviews, how did they end up with a similar, if not the same view of what is right and what is wrong? Which led me to other questions like, well, what was the origin of these cultures and where did humanity come from? And is there some sort of connection to human nature and the innate sense of right and wrong and really what is the difference between right and wrong who says something's right and something's wrong where did that come from no matter which culture or should i say people group that you might want to study on earth no matter what their language what their skin color or what their worldview is you will find that they all have within their systems of community a concept of right and wrong and although there are cultural differences in some concepts of what right and wrong is. For the most part, there is universal commonality on what constitutes right and wrong. Now, how can this be? How can people groups, who in most cases never had contact with the outside world, how can they hold a definition of right and wrong which is almost identical to the rest of the world? Now, I found that one possible answer to this question is that all people groups share a common ancestry at a single point in time. And as a result of this, each successive generation, wherever they migrated to on Earth, they took with them a sense of morality which they gained from their forefathers. Now, this possibility has got a lot of merit based on a 1987 mitochondrial DNA research project, which was carried out by Professor Allen at the University of California in Berkeley. In his findings, he points to the fact that all DNA mitochondrial mutations can be geographically traced from today's people groups, no matter where on earth they are, whether it's in India or Africa or South America or Asia or even Aboriginal Australia. No matter where they are, they can be all traced back to a common starting point, somewhere in the Middle East. Now, if this idea that all people groups share a common starting point, then it would stand to reason that there would be similarities in their views on a number of key concepts, like morality, or even the origin of life, or faith and reason. So I began to dig through numerous books and documents and religious texts and artifacts. And what I began to find was astounding. I started to see each of these various people groups around the planet today did in fact have striking similarities to one another when it came to some very key concepts. For example, 
As I considered the concept of the origin of life, I found that most, if not all, people groups have some profound statements on the subject. According to one account in the Vedas, which is a collection of writings that make up the holy text or book for Hinduism, in the Vedas it teaches that mankind is the result of Brahma or God splitting himself into two to create a male and a female. And then when you go and search the writings of the ancient Chinese classics, you find that the emperor of China would offer prayers each year at what was called a border sacrifice. And in one of those prayers, he stated this while talking to God. He said, you, Shangdi, which is God in Chinese, you, Shangdi, made heaven, you made earth, you made man. All things with their reproducing power got their being. Now, if that wasn't striking enough, if you compare to the teachings of Judaism, you find in the Hebrew book of Genesis, in chapter 1, verse 26, this statement. It says, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, of course, if you turn to Christianity, it affirms the same point, being that it is a, it's a continuation of the Jewish thought. But it's even more specific. It states in the Greek New Testament book of John, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All things were made by him, referring to Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, when you turn your attention to Islam, you can read in Surah chapter 2, verse 21, O people, worship only the Lord, the one who created you, and those before you, that you may be saved. With every one of these worldviews, they all had similar accounts. But it doesn't stop there. I found that the Omaha tribe, which are American Indians, which come from the Midwest part of the United States, amongst their teachings, there's this statement. At the beginning, all things were in the mind of Wakanda. All creatures, including man, were spirits. If you ask the Bantu people who live in equatorial southern Africa, you find this statement. In the beginning, was only one man on the earth, and he was called Kintu. Then I found that the Papuva, which is one of the only surviving texts of the Central American Mayans, it states that, Admiral is the account of time in which it came to pass that all was formed in heaven and upon earth as was spoken by the Creator and Maker, the Mother and Father of life and of all existence, that one by whom all move and breathe. No matter which worldview I picked up, I kept coming across these statements, these claims that the origin of man was somehow connected to a creative process involving a deity. Then I came across a story which was recorded in the book of Overthrowing Apophis, an ancient Egyptian text in hieroglyphics, where it states how the Lord of all, after having come into being, says, I am he who came into being, though becoming one. I thought in my heart, I 
gland in myself. I made all forms being alone. Then I planned in my own heart, and many forms of beings came into being as forms of children, as forms of their children. And then there's the Aboriginal legend that describes only bare land existing in the beginning. There was no life on Earth, no animals, no plants, no trees, and no humans. When Wanjana, the Creator, brought ancestors from within the Earth and over the seas, and all life began. Well, it's that time again. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll continue with my exploration of these major worldviews and their teachings regarding the origin of mankind. And coming up is today's code word for my little free ebook, which is based on today's topic. We'll be right back after this with the Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au/donate.
the stars in all the universe. Sing praises to the living God who rules them by His word. to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen and this is episode 5 and I'm calling this episode Terror and Faith. And before the break, I was sharing with you how in the wake of the terrorist attacks of 911, there was a surge of people flocking back to church. Some commentators say that people were looking for comfort in their hour of crisis. And before the break, I shared with you how I had started exploring the sacred texts and manuscripts and teachings and artifacts of various people groups around the world to try and understand how, generally speaking, most people groups in the world have a common understanding of morality, the concept of right and wrong. And in light of that 1987 mitochondrial DNA research project carried out by University of California in Berkeley, their findings pointed to the fact that all DNA mitochondrial mutations can be geographically traced from today's people groups to a common ancestry, a common starting point somewhere in the Middle East. Now, after looking at Aboriginals, the ancient Chinese, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhist, American Indians, and South American Indians, I found that no matter which people group you pick, it seems that there is a pattern with all of these groups in terms of their concept of the origin of life. And although there are differences in the details, there is a general narrative that at some point in time in the past, humans came from God whether that was by creation out of the dust of the earth or by coming forth from the heart of God or by the gathering of mankind from within the earth, however you looked at it, it was clear that life is thought to have come from a creator. Now, in contrast to these views, when I explored Buddhism for an understanding of their concept of the origin of life, I found that Buddha taught that To think about the origin of the world is unthinkable and is not to be thought about, for that would bring madness and vexation to anyone who thinks about it. This is why the meaning or the purpose of life is undeclared by me, because they are not connected with the goal, are not fundamental to a holy life. They do not lead to disenchantment, self-awakening, and this is why they are undeclared by me. Now, to be fair to this statement, 
that Buddha is said to have made. He's not saying that there is no God and there's no purpose of life. He just believed and taught that it was basically a waste of energy thinking about these things. As for him, our focus and energy needs to be going into solving the problems with humanity here and now, not worrying about where humanity came from. But nonetheless, for Buddha, the origin of life was something that wasn't a priority. The last worldview that I looked at for a concept of the origin of humanity was secularism or atheism. Now, this was my school of thought, and so I already knew the basis of the origin of life. I, along with most atheists, held to the doctrine of Darwinian evolution, that through the event of the so-called Big Bang, the conditions were randomly aligned to provide the right petri conditions for the spark of life to begin. And with the process of time, it all evolved and developed into what we see today. Now, I had accepted this as scientific fact. I mean, I was taught this in every science and biology class for every year of high school. But it's funny, some things, if you hear it enough, you just kind of accept it as being normal because, well, it's familiar. Now, one of the leading thinkers in this space was and still is the great Richard Dawkins. Now, for the first time in my life, I actually decided to look into this worldview and its claims for the origin of life. And to be honest, I was taken back. For example, Richard Dawkins wrote a book in 1979 called The Selfish Gene. And in that book, he makes this statement. He says, The account of the origin of life that I shall give is necessarily speculative. By definition, nobody was around to see what happened? I had always been taught that the basis of scientific fact is something that is observable, demonstrable, measurable, time after time, and the outcome was consistent. Then a fact was established, which is then known as an empirical evidence. That's how science works. Now, if you can't observe it, you can't demonstrate it, you can't measure it time after time with consistent outcomes, then what you have is a theory. And there's nothing wrong with a theory, but a theory is never a fact until it becomes an empirical evidence. And for the first time, I found that this teaching of evolution was in fact, according to one of the leading minds, a speculation or a theory. Why? Because nobody was around to see what happened. When I read this, I thought to myself, evolution is a theory. It's not fact. And if you believe in evolution, then you probably require the same amount of faith as someone who believes that God created humans. Now, after looking at this sample of worldviews and people groups in regards to their understanding of the origin of humanity, I found that the evolutionist says nobody was around, so it's speculative. And the Buddhists teach that it's not a question to think about, while the rest, all the rest, including ancient Chinese, Islam, Christians, Jews, some African tribes and some North American tribes and some South American tribes, even Australian Aboriginal tribes. These groups share the belief that humanity came from some kind of godlike figure, some sort of deity. 
someone that created either from him or in his image. And this concept of a creator God bringing forth humans across all of these different people groups and worldviews seem to be consistent with the conclusion of the Berkeley research, which suggests that all mankind had a single starting point, both in time and in location, somewhere in the Middle East. Now, as I sat there, staring at the data, I thought, since evolution offers only a speculation and Buddhist has no willingness to even think about this topic, I should sit these two worldviews to the side and continue to explore what these other worldviews and other people groups taught regarding what and who they say this God is. I mean, it's one thing to claim that you come from God, but who is he? What is he like? And so, my journey took me on a quest to collect and categorize the attributes and characteristics of God. Well, it's time again to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll continue with my quest to understand what these worldviews and people groups believed about their creator God. And don't forget to stick around for today's code word to get your free ebook based on today's topic. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. We
The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is Episode 5 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this Terror and Faith. And before the break, I share with you how my exploration of worldviews and people groups led me to see a pattern that virtually all of these worldviews held to the idea that humanity came from a creator god of some description. Now, whether you looked at the ancient Chinese in their classical texts or Islam from the Quran or the Jews from the Torah or the Christians with the New Testament or some of the African tribes or North and South American native groups, all had a picture of a creator God. And so now my question was, who is this God? What is he like? To execute this task, I used a common problem-solving tool. Are you ready for this? I used a circle. That's right, the plain old circle. I got out some sheets of paper and I drew a large circle. And inside the circle, I wrote the word God, right there in the middle. You see, this circle would represent God for this task. I would then search through the text and manuscripts and artifacts of these worldviews and find what they described as the attributes and characteristics of God. And I would write them down right in the center of this circle. And my goal was that after this exercise was over, I would have a circle filled with the various descriptions of God. And so exploring the classical texts of the ancient Chinese, which is perhaps the oldest religion on the earth in terms of a written record, which they have documents of records dating back 2400 BC, I found that these ancient Chinese had a rather specific view of Shangdi, or God, who he is and what he was like. For example, to the ancient Chinese, Shangdi, or God, he's sovereign. I found numerous statements taken in various passages of the Chinese classical texts like, O bright and high heaven, or God, who enlightens and rules this lower world. And then there was this proverb which said, Heaven's way is hard to go against. And then here's another one. Everything is settled by Shangdi. I also found that the ancient Chinese saw Shangdi as all-knowing. In the annual border sacrifice ceremony, the emperor of China would recite these words every single year. He would say, Great Shangdi is very intelligent. And he would say, Great Shangdi is intelligent and clear seeing. And then I came across these ancient Chinese proverbs. It says, You may deceive man, but you cannot deceive Shangdi. And here's another one. Shangdi knows the good and evil stored in the heart. So clearly, from an ancient Chinese perspective, Shangdi, or God, was and is all-knowing. They also saw Shangdi as all-powerful. Again, the emperor would pray each year, mysteriously 
great Shangdi is able to strengthen anything, and all life depends upon Shangdi. They also saw Shangdi as infinite. The emperor would pray each year, "How vast is Shangdi? It is like the great Shangdi is illimitable." They also saw Shangdi, or God, as a creator and a father. Again, the emperor would pray each year in these prayers of the Buddha sacrifice. He would say, "You made heaven, you made earth, you made man. All things with their reproducing power got their being from you." Then, in prayer number three, he would pray, "You regard us as a father does his child." And in prayer number nine, he would say, "Like a potter, you have made." All things. The next characteristic I found was that of a judge. In the proverbs, it is written, "There is nothing partial in the way of Shangdi," and Shangdi is a pair of scales. It also says that the net of Shangdi is so great that nothing can escape from it. The ancient Chinese, in addition to seeing God as a creator, a father, an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing judge. They also taught that Shangdi or God deserves our worship. The classical texts say, "Obey Shangdi and honor man." And if you have joy in Shangdi and know your fate, you will have no sorrow. And another proverb reads, "If you do not worship Shangdi above, he will send down calamities upon the people." And so. I had this list of attributes and characteristics that read: the ancient Chinese, the oldest documented civilization on Earth, taught and recorded that Shangdi or God is sovereign. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's infinite. He's a creator. He's a father. He's a judge. He's worthy of worship. Now, this was eye-opening to say the least. But as I continued this same process with the other worldviews that taught that humans came from a creator, the list of characteristics and attributes were virtually the same. For example, the next worldview I looked at was the Hebrew texts known as the Torah, the teachings of Judaism. I found that Elohim or God, He's also sovereign. In the ancient scroll of Isaiah, it states that Elohim or God says, "Look unto me." And be ye saved to all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. He's all-knowing. In the Psalms of King David, it says, "God understanding is infinite." Elohim is also all-powerful. In the ancient scroll of Jeremiah, it says, "Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you." He is. Infinite. He is a creator. He is a father of the human family. In the scroll of Isaiah, it says, "But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay, and Thou art our Potter, and we all are the work of Your hand." The Hebrews also say that Elohim or God is a just judge, and one who deserves worship, and He is loving. The parallel between the ancient Chinese and the Hebrews was striking, but it didn't end there. I found the same list in the teachings of Islam. Allah is seen as sovereign and all-knowing and all-powerful and infinite. In Surah chapter fifty-nine, verse twenty-four, it says, "He is Allah, the Creator, the Inventor, the Fashioner. To Him belong the best names. 
Whatever is in the heavens and earth is exalting him, and he is the exalted in might, the wise. And in Surah chapter 2, verse 129, it says, He is a judge of right and wrong. It reads, Allah loves not those who do wrong. And Islam also sees Allah or God as one who deserves worship. In Surah 43, verse 84, it says, He is the one who is God to be worshipped in the sky and God to be worshipped on the earth. He is the wise, the all-knowing. And in Surah chapter 3, verse 31, it says that if you love Allah, follow me. Allah will love and forgive you your sins. Again, the same characteristics appeared in Islam as was in Judaism, as was in the ancient Chinese. And when I turned my attention to the teachings of the Christian faith, I found that in the Greek New Testament books, the followers of Jesus taught that God is sovereign, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is infinite, God is just, God is a judge, and God deserves worship and is loving. But these Christian teachings seem to go further and even deeper. In addition to these common attributes and characteristics that I was seeing across all of these world views and people groups, the teachings state in the Greek New Testament that God is the very source of love. Not just love, but the essence of love. It also teaches that he is the essence of peace, the essence of joy. He is the only way. He is the source of life. He is gentle. He is good. He is meek. He is wise. He is eternal. He is the essence and source of truth. And he is the definition of righteousness. And he suffers long. And so at the end of this exercise, I found myself with a large circle drawn on a sheet of paper. And inside this circle was a list of characteristics and attributes which all of these worldviews and people groups called God. And it was confronting. You see, all of these characteristics of this God as presented by these various worldviews, they were not only positive, but they were good and very desirable. And as I was sitting there, staring at this circle, at these characteristics, it hit me. Everything on this page, everything in this circle, was what I was looking for. It's what I was hoping for. It was the basis of my craving in life. I was looking for love. I was looking for peace. I was looking for joy. I was looking for truth. I was looking for the way. And even though I saw myself as an atheist, I was looking for the very thing. In fact, I was looking for everything that was inside this circle. I was looking for God. You know, wherever you are right now, wherever you're listening right now from, whatever your worldview is right now, I'm going to predict that you're looking for love. You're looking for peace. You're looking for joy, for happiness, for wisdom. You're looking for the right way in life. You're looking for life itself. 
And I haven't met a person yet. And I've met a lot of people. I've been to 40 plus countries. I've visited six of the seven continents. I have met a lot of people. But I haven't met anyone yet who doesn't want love, who doesn't want peace, doesn't want joy, doesn't want happiness or life. I just haven't met them yet. You see, you are looking for God. You might not know it, but it's wired into each one of us that the desires of the very things that we are craving, all of these worldviews point to as being the description of God. And so as I was sitting there, staring at that circle, it hit me. I was looking for God. Next time on The Faith Experiment, I'll continue to take you on my personal faith experiment and how this circle impacted the next stage of my journey. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I have a great little giveaway for you all today. It's an ebook that I put together based on today's topic. It's called Stories of How the World Began. It's just a little book, but it pulls together a lot of material I've referred to on this episode. So it'll be a great resource and I'd love to get you a copy. All you need to do is to text the code word WORLD. W-O-R-L-D. Text the word WORLD to 0488-45311 and the Faith FM giveaway bot will reply to you with a link to the free download. So text the code word WORLD to 0488-45311. Now it's time for this week's inbox. This is the time when I browse through the inbox and I share your comments, feedback and questions. I have an email here from Rebecca who says, I am so enjoying the new podcast. It's like a gripping movie and I'm disappointed when the episode ends. Well, that's fantastic, Rebecca. I'm glad that you're enjoying the show and I hope that you'll find opportunity to share it with your friends and family and get them involved with the program as well. Thanks very much, Rebecca. And I have a text here from Jim who was answering last week's question about exploring other worldviews. Jim says that back in the late 1990s, I explored Wicca and the ancient European religions, believing that since my ancestry is there, that it would somehow resonate with me. I was disappointed with the moral fiber of its practitioners. Thanks, Jim, for sharing your experience. It's always interesting to hear how other people have experimented with faith. Well, thank you for your feedback. I really do appreciate it. Remember, you can text me your comments on 0488845311 or email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. Well, that's all for now. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Connect with us via text message on 0488 That's 0488-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode.